Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Coach Vivine for May 21st, 2023. I'm your host, Dave McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have you all on this evening. And coming up in about 20 minutes, we're going to welcome back one of our favorite guests, who's been on multiple times now from California, uh, educator and California political expert, although he can really discuss about anything, um, Steve Singheiser. And so Steve will join us here in a few minutes, and we will talk about California in depth along with some other things. Uh, But until then, we're going to talk kind of some southern issues in Georgia and Florida, and we're going to start off with a poll that Landmark Communications put out, and I pulled this poll up so I'd have me some numbers to discuss. Um, And so Landmark Communications, if you don't know about that, that is a Republican firm that, um, you know, it's kind of a consulting firm. They will do polling at times. And so they polled the 2024 uh, presidential race in Georgia only, and they may have asked about other candidates. In fact, I see they asked a few other candidates. Um, they ask about Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. They also ask about former Vice President Mike Pence, um, Nikki Haley as well. And in this poll, even though his favorability ratings were you know, pretty solid, he only came in at 7%. That was pretty far down from Trump, who won that poll, or was 40% or led that poll, I should say. I guess you can't win a poll and just lead it. He, he led it with 40%. Ron DeSantis quite, more than quadrupled uh, Kemp's support with 32%, even though he's not the governor of Georgia. Um, and, and even Nikki Haley from next door got right at 6%, a margin of error within Kemp's um, you know numbers, and he is the sitting governor of the state they're polling. Um, Tim, what do you make of these numbers? Well, first of all, of course, Kemp is not in the race. He's not going to get in the race. He hasn't talked about getting in the race, and I'm not sure why they included him in the model. Um, he he did. There's seven announced candidates in the race, and he finished third. So, so he does at least, you know, have that to fall back on. But it's regardless of the other names, including Kemp's, that this really is a, a two-candidate race. It shows that in Georgia, and it shows it everywhere else. And and you you you're left with the question, not 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 just about Kemp scoring so low. But but you're left with the question: Why why are some of these people even in the race? Yeah, that that's a whole nother discussion we can keep having. It makes me wonder if I don't understand Republican politics, 
as well as I might thought I, you know, would have. Um, Catherine, I will read a statement, and we'll turn it into a question. Mark Roundtree, who runs Glam Communications, pretty, you know, in team with the Republican electorate in Georgia, said while people have a favor, a very favorable impression of Brian Kemp in Georgia, it's not translating into votes for president. Why do you think he's unable to translate um, his support into votes for the, a theoretical presidential race just in the state of Georgia? I think it's because of the uh, election controversies after the 2020 election. I think there's still Republicans who are um, unsure of his uh, whatever, loyalty or um, convictions to support Republicans. And, and if you know, there's enough Trump voters in Georgia to, you know, have an impact on that, I think. Um, so I, that would be my, that's my, that was my first, my first impression was that it was in response to him not coddling up to Trump like everyone would have liked him to. Yeah, I think you're actually right about that, Catherine, that he doesn't have, you know, deep, deep support. We're seeing problems where he's not even going to the Republican convention because um, they've, they've elected a lot of new GOP party members that are really anti-Kemp, although it makes you wonder, like, why couldn't um, David Perdue mount a better candidacy against him? And I think this this poll actually then becomes a – a big indictment of um, the magnetic or lack thereof personality of David Perdue um, because he couldn't take advantage of that opening against Brian Kemp. Well, Tim, I think you're right that Brian Kemp's not going to get in this race. This poll's not going to help him get in this race. Um, So if he were to make more moves, we could discuss this further. But do you think there's any more to the story tonight, Tim? Well, I mean, they did also expand the poll and did uh, favorability ratings on Trump, Kemp, and DeSantis. And I thought those were interesting, too. They also broke down the poll among the respondents as to which candidate did well among which uh, demographic voter group. But on their favorability ratings, this is odd. DeSantis has a 74.5% favorable with only 12.6 unfavorable. Kemp is at 72.6 and 12.4. Donald Trump, who won the poll, is at 56.4 favorability and 35.4 unfavorables. Um <laughs> I, I guess that says everybody already knows what they think of Donald Trump, and they've already chosen up a side. Um, whereas Kemp and DeSantis can afford to have high favorables because they're not they're not in the race, and and uh, at least not yet for DeSantis, so they're not getting a fist to the mouth yet from Trump, but it's coming. Here's another thing. Those major demographic voter groups I mentioned, male, female, young voters, white, African America, and other races, those were the groups they broke the 
broke down. Trump won every one of them. Every last one of them. Jesus. So, you know, what do you make of everything I just said? (laughs) That's a pretty key telling stat that Trump's um, support crossed a lot of different demographic lines. So it's not like it's all contingent on a certain group of voters. Um, right. So, you know, it's definitely, and it's been that way for months now, is Donald Trump's race to lose. Um, and things like, you know, indictments and revelations that he cheated on Melania Trump again, which came out again this week, it's just not going to matter to the Republican electorate. As long as he runs. At least a big a big portion of them is not going to matter. Yeah, it not the, well the the plurality and very possibly a majority, and so yeah, yeah. it's this is only going to matter. Uh, I mean, as far as Brian Kemp and this poll, if for some reason everything goes sideways and he decides to run and it changes up, so let's go ahead and continue to move through because we got a lot to talk about tonight, and let's move down to Florida, but we're actually going to hold off. I'm talking about Ron DeSantis for a minute, and we're going to talk about Rick Scott in a way. Rick Scott's up for re-election. He kind of, in, in many ways, surprisingly won election in 2018, defeating who I thought was a pretty popular incumbent, Bill Nelson, in a Democratic year. And so now it's 2024 presidential year, um, you know, a little bit different, uh, and even though Val Demings seemed like as about as good a recruit as you could find in Florida, she didn't really finish that close to Marco Rubio. So now Rick Scott's up, and Democrats are – I'll say this. They're not giving up. Uh, they're trying to find – Florida Democrats are trying to find uh, a candidate that can run against Rick Scott. And the first two names that I've seen in just the past week that they mentioned as recruiting is former Miami Heat basketball player Dwayne Wade and former Orlando Magic basketball player Grant Hill. I didn't know either one of the gentlemen were big into politics. That that was kind of news to me, and I really don't know if they are. Um, Catherine, what do you make of this idea to to recruit kind of a noble, a notable athletic celebrity? Well, didn't Dwayne Wade just announce that he's leaving Florida? He already has. I know that. Yeah, so I don't understand that. Like, he he has no interest in being in Florida because of his family, and so I don't get that. Um, I'm not a you know I'm not a I'm not a big sports fan, but I'm also not crazy about recruiting someone just because they have a big name or you know, because they can self-fund maybe. Um, I just think, uh, I mean, w- what do they have to offer as far as policy and experience and, um, you know, connections in the political world? I just, I, I mean, I'm, I have nothing against these guys, but it just seems like a folly, like just a way of drawing attention and without much substance behind it. That's my thought. Yeah, Tim, uh, what is your take on Grant Hill and Dwayne Wade and their possible recruitment of either one of them? Well, 
as far it seems to be further along with Hill, he there there are some major Democratic operatives who have said, who have told the media that they have been openly courting him. They've talked to him face to face. The problem that they have with Hill is that he has some major business interests that he's pursuing. Uh, he has seen, you know, what people like Michael Jordan have been able to do, you know, with business. And, and he wanted to follow that sort of model. He would have to scale that back or give a lot of it up in, in order to to run. Now, Catherine mentioned it. Wade no longer lives in Florida. He and his family left because of anti-LGBTQ uh, laws. His daughter is transgender. They moved out to Los Angeles. He he has been an activist, uh, you know, pro-LGBTQ uh, activist. Uh, and, and so he's he's been political in that sense. But I don't think he has an interest in coming back to Florida and running, and I would be surprised if if either of them ran, David. Yeah, and I had heard that about his daughter, but I had forgotten that in the context of this recruitment. So Mm -hmm. it does make a little more sense why they've tried to recruit him against the Florida Republican Party, who has taken such strong uh, stands on being um, anti um LGBTQ, so uh, that, that does give it a little more credence that makes more sense. I do know that uh, when you've seen the two gentlemen talk in post-game interviews, and, and honestly, I think Wayne Wade actually has a show called The Cube. He's kind of a game show host currently. Um, Grant Hill seems to maybe, you know, come off a little more substantive, um, you know, even though he may be more apolitical. Uh, I, I never want to dismiss athletes out of hand. Because I think you can get a Bill Bradley or a Jack Kemp that were, you know, really well versed on the issues, but you can also, you know, get a Herschel Walker. I think these two gentlemen would probably be somewhere between. I, I don't. I mean, you'd have to work hard to be another Herschel Walker, um, but then you'd have to work hard to be a Rhodes Scholar like Bill Bradley. <laughs> so there's really uh, – most of us might be somewhere between a Rhodes Scholar and Herschel Walker um, on the scale of qualified for U.S. Senate. Um, and so it, it just was like an interesting plan. I mean, honestly, while Val Demings didn't you know, do well because of the state, I, I mean, would anybody be opposed to seeing her try again if we really thought 2024 was going to be different? Well, there are a lot of uh, people down there, a lot of elected officials at various levels, including uh, Congress critters, that, that are taking a hard look at that race. You're not going to have a shortage, guys, of, of qualified people that want to run for that seat. It'll just be name recognition will be probably most of their problems. You know how it is with a congressperson. They're known well in their district sometimes and then nowhere else. So, Yeah. Well, well Catherine, same question about Val Demings. If she wanted to run again, I mean, you know, and try the other Senate seat, 
Would you be opposed to it? I wouldn't be opposed to it, but I think we have to recognize that um, I'm just not sure that that Florida is really in play anymore. I just think it's become such a conservative uh, bastion of policy and legislation and um, and rhetoric that I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not opposed to it. And I think we need to run the best candidate we can, but I don't think we need to, I think we would be um, wrong to put a lot of hope in it at this point. I mean, I do know that the Biden-Harris campaign actually did a media buy um, early on in Florida. So somebody sees some potential in Florida changing. And, and it's weird because obviously – you know, Florida was so Republican in 2022, but you look at the demographics of the state in many ways, you got to this can't be it. It, it, it. This is not Wyoming. This is not Alabama. This is a different state. This could turn quicker than a state like that. And so I see why people are so, you know, quick not to give it up. They want to keep on with it, although it is a very expensive state. So. Um, yeah, and like we talked, about, maybe. we talked about calling all red. There's just no good targets, Catherine. Yeah, I mean, when you hear about media buyers, you have to wonder, you know, who made the decision to do that? Perhaps the media buyers. Well, I who mean, gain, who, who expect to, you know, who will benefit greatly from that purchase? Well, I mean, uh, obviously, people have made wrong decisions in media buying. I mean, you, but, you, but if you buy ads, you could buy ads anywhere, but they did place them in the usual suspect swing states along with they, they targeted North Carolina and Florida. Um, they, they looked at those states, so they, they must see something there. And then, of course, as we're talking about Florida, Tim, a big uh, mayoral race switch, the largest – city in America that was held by a Republican was Jacksonville, Florida. This past week, Jacksonville flipped. Is that a sign to where Democrats might say, well, if Jacksonville can flip, what about doing that in other races and in other parts of the state? And the funny thing is there is that Ron DeSantis, He had his guy in the race, Daniel Davis. That was his guy. And Donald Trump has really made great sport about that. That was one of the big races that Ron DeSantis lost the other night. Uh, Donna Deegan is the new uh, mayor of Jacksonville. She's the first female mayor of Jacksonville. Um, Won it in a runoff. And... uh, you know, she just said we made history. You know, it's a new day. Well, it, it, it most certainly is because uh, Jacksonville is the largest city in the country with a with a Republican mayor. Well, there's uh, they're they're not any longer. So that there's no way the Republicans can spend that positively in Ron DeSantis's backyard with his hand picked candidate. Losing. There, there's no way they get. But now Donald Trump can have some fun with that because he did not make an endorsement in that race. So I, that was it was part of Ron DeSantis's bad week, guys. <laughs> he 
and that you segue us right into that. Um, Ron DeSantis had a really bad week. He also <laughs> uh, the Kentucky governor's primary. Yeah, did uh, Ron DeSantis's candidate finished third? Donald Trump's candidate, which was this sitting attorney general, Daniel Cameron, uh, Cameron actually won it. So that was just another little thing. But that's kind of inside baseball, but on more of an overt, um, you know, bad week. Um, Catherine, let's start with Disney. Disney announced that a $1 billion project that they had planned to start, it was going to provide somewhere in the neighborhood of 20,000 20, jobs has uh, been pulled from the state. Um, how is that going to be received by the Florida voters? I don't think it's going to be received very well. And those were white-collar you know, executive jobs because it was going to be their headquarters. And it wasn't like park jobs. I mean, both are good, but it was a different kind of job, job market. Um, yeah, I, I don't think um, – I think DeSantis has – opened a can of worms that he's not going to be able to shut. <laughs> I think he made a very bad strategic move in going after Disney. Yeah. Um, Tim, um, you know, 20,000 uh, 20, jobs, a billion-dollar investment. Florida wants to continue to grow, and these are different jobs. Uh, what do Florida voters, you know, how do they react on this, even some that were maybe more soft Republican voters? Well, obviously they can't be happy with this. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a battle that, that he basically chose to fight against. It, 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 it was like I've got to find myself an enemy so that I can, you know, do some big things nationally. <laughs> he, he settled on Disney, you know, the biggest private employer in his state with all the millions and billions of dollars coming in there. And, and it's a battle he's losing, frankly. Uh, I mean, Disney's suing the state and, uh, and that billion-dollar training center project that would have moved 2,000 six-figure dollar jobs from California to Florida. All that's gone now. And the governor is left with, with egg on his face on the eve, apparently, of his uh, rollout of his presidential campaign. Bad. Great moments in bad timing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so um, let's go ahead right now and uh, welcome in our guest from Los Angeles. Welcome back to the show, Steve Singizer. How are you guys doing today? Oh, good to All have right. you on. Doing good. Steve, I want to tell you, uh, there's kind of a list of guests that we have where they've been on the show so many times we've kind of lost count. It's kind of like when Saturday Night Live gives the jacket out after you've guest hosted three times. I think you're officially in that club now because I couldn't tell you how many times we've had you on. <laughs> I feel honored for that, and I apologize. There's actually an ice cream truck coming up the street in the background behind me if that gets picked up, so sorry about that. He'll be gone soon. <laughs> hey, who knows if that gets picked up in the background sometimes. Well, well, Steve, we want to have you on. A lot of times we talk about some education issues. I do want to ask you about one of those later 
But let's start off a little bit California politics. And um, there's a lot of candidates in the race that I'm sure between Tim Cather and I will try to cover most of them. But I wanted to start off with Katie Porter. She's running for um, uh, the U.S. Senate seat. She's got a new book out. But I've heard underneath the surface, her district in Orange County, people consider it to be more of a swing district. And some people are wanting her not to run and defend that House seat. So I want to ask you kind of a multi-part question there. One, is there any truth to that rumor? And two, um, what is the makeup of this Orange County House District? Well, that's a rumor that I I can't say that I've heard, but I wouldn't be surprised by. Um, She is got a couple things going for her. One, being a local, she was a professor of law at at UC Irvine, which is one of the anchor institutions in the district and she's an unbelievable fundraiser for house races now for senate races she's a good fundraiser uh but she's in a field with a bunch of good fundraisers adam schiff and to a lesser extent barbara lee so i i would not be surprised that there'd be some clamor for her to get back into the house race because the thing about that house team it does lean democratic but it is just that it is a lean and it is a slight one uh, she, on election night last year, there was a lot of, of heavy breathing that, that she was in deep, deep trouble in. And the NRCC, the Republican campaign wing for the House uh, seats, uh, put just a metric crap ton of money into trying to beat her. I'm not joking. Of course, you guys know I'm a big sports fan. Every hockey game, every football game in the fall had at least one anti-KED Porter ad per, uh, per uh, commercial break. And so they gunned for her, and they almost got her. I can only imagine they'll just redouble those efforts for an open seat. And I think they're afraid, you know, if the Democrats are going to somehow manage to get the House back, they are going to have to lose next to nothing that they already have. And that's a seat that in an open environment they could lose. Now, to answer your question about the district, the district central Orange County, Irvine is the kind of anchor city, which is – a lot of people are like, oh, little, you know, Irvine, isn't that cute? Irvine's got like 250,000 people. You know, it's bigger than Salt Lake City. Uh, but it's, you know, just a suburb in Orange County, and a lot of those get to be kind of anonymous. Irvine has trended left pretty steadily over the last decade to two decades. But the other areas around there, like Newport Beach is reliably Republican. And so there's there's little pockets of red in there to go with, this kind of blue center. And so it is a true swing district. So I would not be surprised, especially since, you know, I don't, I don't mean to make this to you guys. I don't mean to make this sound negative or, or in any way disparaging of representative Porter, but there's no one that's in that district that, you know, no one in the district, excuse me. There's no one in that Senate race that's truly objectionable. It's not like there's a huge hankering for her to be the one, right? Anyone who likes Adam Porter probably is going to have a huge problem with, either Barbara Lee or Adam Schiff. Maybe they'll have a problem with one or the other, but they're pretty unlikely to have a problem with both. Yeah, I, I liken it. I, I hearken back to last Senate cycle where, you know, Connor Lamb was a totally fine um, quality candidate in Pennsylvania, but I got the sense that John Fetterman was just different. He was just not your typical politician. He cut the mold. And even though Katie Porter's nothing like John Fetterman, 
I get the sense that she has that same it factor about her where she just cuts the mold and she's just a different kind of candidate. Do you see kind of that, not comparison, because once again, John Fetterman and Katie Porter are different, but the fact that she's not just a regular politician? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Let me, I mean, the one thing I think they both have in common, I agree with you, they're very different stylistically, they're different in terms even of their ideological outlook. Uh, but the one thing that they both have in common is they both kind of tend, to use a football analogy, they tend to run towards the contact, right? Some running backs will run around, they'll juke, some just want to go right through you, Jim Brown style, with all, uh, with all well, best wishes to his family, him having just passed. Jim Brown just wanted to go right through you. Katie Porter, rhetorically, as a politician, wants to just go right through you, which is how – honestly how she became such a prodigious fundraiser is she became a darling of a lot of people who follow this stuff very closely because she'd go into these committee hearings, which are normally fairly staid, boring affairs. And she would go in, she'd go in there with that, you know, with an ambition to just absolutely lay folks out verbally in these things. And she became kind of the queen of house viral videos uh, for the right reasons, not viral videos like, you know, Marjorie Taylor Green viral videos because you slap your forehead, but viral videos in man look look at her lay waste to this witness, this CEO, this banker, whatever. So she is different. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the whiteboard. Well, Steve, I'm going to change directions because I know Catherine and Jim are going to ask you more about this Senate race and other things. But I want, did want to ask an education question. Um, this past week. Um, in Florida, maybe a week ago, another week ago, after the standardized testing, um, they, a Florida classroom showed a PG Disney movie. And I don't know if you've seen the video of the teacher laying out the defense. She says that they sent home a note for all parents to say, do you approve your child seeing a PG Disney movie? Everyone in the classroom, everyone that's going to view the movie said, parents said, absolutely approve they showed the movie, and a school board member is now coming after that first-year teacher's job. Um, what is your thoughts on it, and, and how much have you, you know, looked into it? It's not surprising, but it's somewhat revolting. <laughs> I mean, that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing it, every, you know, it's not just in Florida. We had in the district where I work um, – we had a, a, a trio of school board candidates who effectively ran for the school board promising that level of micromanagement of teachers in, in the name of fighting wokeness or whatever the buzzword du jour might be. They, they, up, they up and swore that's what they were going to do if they got elected. Now, fortunately, in the, the community I work in, uh, their movement, as they called it, was rejected pretty soundly. But a lot of these folks get in because they're friends and neighbors and, oh, that kid was in Little League or, or that kid's dad was in Little League with me. He's a nice guy or he coached the youth soccer team or whatever. And then they get there and they have a very clear agenda. To what you're telling me, that is standard protocol when you use in-class media. Uh, you, you get from – you get – permission from the parents and if you don't hear otherwise you assume that that content is okay to show and 
the fact that this school board member is now trying to make an example of this teacher, again, isn't surprising because there's a whole generation of school board members that are coming forward with that goal. And, and so the question becomes, in my mind, as a teacher, as someone who's been doing this now over a quarter of a century, is how is that advancing education? I don't know anything about this teacher, but someone still, after all, the, after all the hoops we now have to jump through to become teachers, and after the esteem of the profession has been laid to waste by these people in the COVID era, the fact that you have people still wanting to go into the profession alone would make me want to think twice before demonizing somebody who could be an asset to my district for 30 or 40 years. But that's not the goal. The goal isn't education. The goal isn't to make the learning process for youngsters better, K through 12. The goal is to advance adult politics. And really, more uh, inappropriately than that, the goal really has become to score points in the culture wars so that that school board member can go on later to run for a state assembly seat or a congressional seat or a city council seat or whatever. It's about personal ambition, which is even more gross because, you know, I've never been a Ron DeSantis guy ever, but when he went hardcore culture warriors, when he started thinking about going, running for president, to the point that he's willing to sacrifice billion-dollar contracts in a state because he's running for president. It, it's, it's disturbing, to say the least. Oh, definitely. And I'll tell you what, when I watched that video of that teacher, she knew the policy, and she was using the policy in her favor. And I think a lot of these uh, board members with an agenda are going to um, really set themselves a trap for themselves where they don't know the policy. Teacher's going to get fired even though they follow the policy, and they're going to come back with a wrongful termination suit. Um, so I, I see, I could see that when I heard the way she laid the case out. If everything's like she laid it out, uh, it, and if she does get terminated, it, it, she could have a case on her hands. Well, I'll go ahead and turn this over to Catherine and Tim with more political question. If there's anything, you know, uh, California politics-wise to ask about, I may follow back up. Uh, Catherine? Hey, Steve, thanks for, thanks for being on with us tonight. We really appreciate it. I want to ask you about the jungle primary and any concerns that Democrats have about uh, a jungle primary in, the, in that Senate race and how that might impact the, you know, ultimate election. Are we concerned that multiple Democrats might hurt those numbers? It's a great question. At right now, the answer is no, and the only reason the answer is no right now is because there isn't anything that you could say as a prominent Republican in, the kind that can run a statewide campaign. Uh, so far, it's a very thin field on their side. So it's been we've, – we've had this primary now. We are in – this will be our sixth election cycle with it. Uh, or excuse me, our seventh. My bad. Um, and i got to tell you that it's hurt. It's hurt teams, you know, parties in the past. Uh, even recently, there was a, a race, a state senate race in Northern California in a slightly Trump foothill district, about Trump plus seven, I think it was. And there was two, uh, there was one Democrat running against, um, or sorry, two Democrats running, and there were four prominent Republicans. So the two Democrats split. 45% of the vote, 
But the problem was the four, the four Republicans running all broke almost perfectly evenly. So when the primary happened, it was the two Democrats got like 23 and 22%, and the best Republican was 19 And that can happen. That's the jungle primary, and that's what folks are so afraid of. Now, the thing here is twofold. One, you've only got three really prominent Democrats, and they'll probably get almost all of the Democratic vote. The second thing is there's not one Republican to consolidate around. There are, there are several running, but none are, are names. If that were to change, I would start to get nervous. Um, you could probably in California statewide, because California is blue enough statewide, you could probably survive a three-on-two, three, uh, three Democrats, two Republicans, because those two Republicans are only going to split about 40% of the vote. So you'll probably be okay. The math's probably okay. Uh, But if another prominent Democrat were to get in, and there's still plenty of time, and there's still whispers of of various people still thinking about it, then you start to get a little nervous if somebody of consequence on the Republican side gets in. Right now it's it's a list of nobodies. Well, that's relief. (laughs) Yeah, Um, exactly. uh, (laughs) And what do we think about Barbara Lee and uh, Adam Schiff? Are they, are they, um, like, what's that threesome going to be like with Katie Porter? I think they, you know, to be honest with you, it is the kind of race that if there were two really prominent Republicans and another Dem guy, and it would be something to be worried about because there's no obvious first choice among those three. They have different regional uh, bases. Katie Porter's in Orange County. Uh, Adam Schiff's in North Los Angeles County, and, of course, Barbara Lee's from the Bay Area. But I'll tell you what I have to think Adam Schiff and Katie Porter are hoping, which is that they're probably hoping, and I know this is going to sound strange, they're kind of hoping that Dianne Feinstein doesn't resign. Because, you see, back a few months back uh, when Dianne Feinstein first fell ill, Gavin Newsom uh, reiterated something he had said a long time ago, which was that if, a senator were to resign, he would appoint an African-American female. Barbara Lee is the only one of the three that fits that particular uh, demographic uh, combination. So would he nominate as a replacement senator Barbara Lee, who's an active candidate, a year before the election and make her the incumbent? That would be... That'd be a holy crap moment right there, and it'd obviously not be something that Adam Schiff and Katie Porter want to see, especially when, to be honest with you, in terms of the basics of, of campaigning, fundraising, and visibility, Barbara Lee is probably in third place on those metrics. Uh, she raised a fraction of what uh, Adam Schiff led. He was in the $6 million range. Katie Porter was in the mid-fours, as I recall. Uh, Barbara Lee raised a million in terms of cash on hand, Katie Porter and Adam Schiff both have in the eight figures. I want to say uh, Schiff has 24 and Katie Porter has 15 on hand. And I want to say Barbara Lee has somewhere between one and two. So by the traditional metrics, she should be a distant third. But if she gets to be the incumbent in advance, and she would be the logical one to pick. Uh, Karen Bass would have been another logical pick, but of course she just got elected mayor of Los Angeles. She's not going to leave that to be a caretaker senator. So there's, Something to there's a dynamic there, and if you saw the video of Diane Feinstein this week, it it's not a you know wild hypothetical to suggest that might be something that happens. Uh, that was honestly, as somebody who's followed her career for a long time, 
Uh, she first got elected to the Senate when I was in college. It was the first election I really followed closely when I was 19 years old. Um, that was a hard video to watch. It yeah, really was. it was. Well, hopefully, I, I think we have three good candidates, so hopefully that'll, you know, it'll all work out in the Democrats' favor, like we always want. <laughs> I'm going to pass it exactly. to some more questions. Thanks so much. Go ahead, hey, Dave. Steve, thank you for being on with us tonight. I'd like to uh, jump into some national stuff with you, if you don't mind, because we got a couple of big political stories coming down the pike this week. One of them involves what Janet Yellen called a pretty hard date, June the 1st, and it's coming in a hurry. And contrary to what some on the other side think, I, I, I believe there is a debt limit. I think it exists. And and we also know that the two sides uh, have great differences in, in what they want to do about this. So we're a political show. That's why I ask this question in this way. In the debt ceiling debate, who will the majority of the American people side with if there is not an agreement, and why? That's a great question, and I will tell you that I think the answer is it will split pretty close to 50-50 because almost all of these debates split pretty close to 50-50. If you are somebody who generally sees things as the Democrats see things, you'll blame the congressional Republicans. If you're someone who sees things as someone who normally favors Republicans, you're going to blame President Biden. And the people who don't have strong feelings either way will probably split pretty evenly. I think there is a slight chance. Let me put it to you another way, Tim, and, and I know I'm, I'm sort of you know, going off on a tangent here. But if there's somebody who will be disproportionately hurt, I do fear it will be the Democrats. Because cutting spending sounds great to most people – until they know exactly what that spending cut is. And you don't know what that is till it's gone. So from a campaign rhetoric standpoint, this is home turf for the Republicans. They can say, oh, we are just trying to rein in that out-of-control spending, and whether you think out-of-control spending is defense spending or welfare spending, a large percentage of Americans can think of things in the federal budget they'd like to cut. So, from again, just strictly from a campaign rhetoric standpoint, I think that the Republicans are on favorable turf. The mm-hmm. thing that hurts them, the thing that hurts them, is that the Democrats or Biden can respond to all we want is just to extend it, and then we can talk about the rest of that later. And of course, that's not something the Republicans will ever do. And so. The one thing that has saved these debates in the past for the presidents who've been involved has been to push the idea of a clean debt ceiling bill. In other words, mm-hmm. we're not going to debate anything else. Let's just take care of this problem right now. Now, what a lot of people on the left have said is fair, though, which is what the Democrats should have done with the limited political capital they had two years ago was get rid of the debt ceiling debate altogether. It's sort of a foolish point. You've already paid for it. I, I can't go to my credit card company and say, you know what? Uh, I bought all this stuff, but I'd like to negotiate whether or not I need to pay that bill. Yeah, that'd be nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't really work that way. When that happens, my credit rating goes to hell in a handbasket, and I suspect that's the fear of what will happen 
to the country at large, but it's one of those things they could have probably taken care of. I think their fear was they couldn't get anything through because the majorities were so small. That may be true. I, I don't know. I, I, I am not the majority whip or the minority whip, so I don't know the answer to that question, but it sure seems to me that they should have tried because this has been a common hostage-taking tool as long as I follow, followed politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, they had no problem raising the debt ceiling when the Republicans were in charge in 2017 and racking up, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in tax cuts, adding a trillion dollars to the deficit one of those years in the in the Trump years. They had no trouble raising the debt ceiling then, but now we've got to rein things in. It It's just a little too precious by half. Yeah, the, the Constitution, of course, pretty well indicates that we, we're supposed to pay our bills. Uh and there's been a growing consensus, especially among some progressives, that perhaps the tack the president should take is to at least put out there on the table the possibility of using the 14th Amendment to, um, you know, go, go ahead and pay the debts of the country. Uh, how, how do you think the country would react to the president taking a step like that? It's funny. I don't think the country would have too much of a response to it because I, I'm a firm believer. I'm a firm believer that process is not something that 90% of voters care about. The hardcore cares mm-hmm. about one way or another, either go plotted or to boo it. Where I think that would mm-hmm. run into trouble is I think that would get land in federal court almost immediately. And I, I do mm-hmm. have some conservative friends, and I follow them on social media, and they're friends. And one of them said today, he said, there's at least five votes in the Supreme Court to deny Biden that opportunity, maybe six. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not, you know, again, not a constitutional lawyer, but I do not doubt that statement. Because there's five votes in the Supreme Court and maybe six for any conservative initiative, no matter how constitutional or unconstitutional it is. And we all know that. So I think mm-hmm. that's the bigger I think that's the bigger danger for Biden. The danger is not would the public you know, react in this immense outrage. Again, process is not something – the debt ceiling itself is not something I think the vast majority of the public cares about. It's not something mm-hmm. – if you, if you walk a campaign uh, trail for a year, uh, maybe the idea of debt in general or budgets in general may come up, but the idea of we've got to hold fast on the debt ceiling limit and coming up once. <laughs> but if it goes to court – the court's interpretation of the 14th Amendment may be different than those progressives or how you and I might view it. In fact, I'd say it's pretty mm. likely it probably is. Mm. Well, then the other major political story is, of course, uh, candidates are lining up for the Republican nomination. There's seven announced candidates already, and it does appear that a couple of more, including Ron DeSantis, are at least going to go with a soft launch maybe this week. And, of course, people then want to talk about the horse race because they can see the same polls that we see, and every poll universally has uh, Trump, DeSantis, one and two, all others far, far, far behind in the low to mid single digits. So let's talk about a two-person horse race right quick. Is there any chance that Ron DeSantis can defeat Donald Trump one-on-one for the Republican nomination? 
you know, the way that it has gone to this point, my answer to that would be no. Now, things can mm-hmm. change, of course. But the funny mm-hmm. thing is, and it happened again this week, is that any time Trump is in the headlines, and Trump is always in the headlines, every Republican running, even whether they're running for president or not, Tim, every Republican feels the need to defend the guy. So when the whole hullabaloo about the investigation, the Russia investigation, came out this week, every Republican jumps in and says, ah, see, told you Trump would be vindicated, even though really the report didn't vindicate him all that much, and it was the actual – the actual report itself was way more nuanced than they were making it out to be. Surprise, surprise there. They all felt compelled to have to defend him. And so how are you going to catch up to a guy whose butt you're perpetually kissing? It's, it's, mm. it's tough to tell. <laughs> um, and i got to tell you that I don't see, even if those other candidates drop out, congratulations, Nikki Haley dropped out. There's 0.4% in your pocket. Good job. Um <laughs> And yeah, although I did see today, I don't know if you guys saw this because it happened right before we came on, that uh, John Thune, who is high up in the Senate leadership, is going to this week at some point, it's being announced, is going to endorse Tim Scott, uh, who is, to say the least, a long shot there. But I thought that was interesting because that guy is not a – he's not a quack and he's not a backbencher. So is the idea, okay, DeSantis isn't going to be the guy. We better get behind somebody else. Because the one thing about DeSantis – and I, look, I, I, I got to lay my cards on the table and my biases on the table and be fair. I hate the guy with the fire of a thousand suns. I am a parent of a transgender young adult. So you can imagine uh-huh. what I think about his little ass. I mean, I'd love to pummel the guy if I ever got the chance. But having said that, I thought a lot of the criticism of him was unfair. He's a horrible campaigner. I'm like, I saw him campaign for governor twice. He didn't seem that bad. And now I'm watching him on the campaign trail running, you know, running for president without running for president. And I'm sitting there going, my goodness, I think they're right. I, I don't know if his skills have deteriorated or he thinks he's got to change his approach because he's running for president, but it's pretty rare to see someone that in professional politics who just looks that uncomfortable. What's, for example, and this has been lampooned by everybody, but what's with that laugh? Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's not the way people naturally authentically find things funny. Uh, it's it's, oh, yeah, it's yeah. like a misprogrammed robot. It's it's not good. <laughs> so how is that guy going to come back? Uh, you know. And so I think his best chance was early. If everybody yeah. just decided they were sick of Trump and they needed one horse to beat him, and he was that guy, especially coming off just pasting Charlie Chris by almost twenty points. And, and carrying Miami-Dade and, and coming way closer than anybody would have ever thought to carrying the Orlando area and everything else, I think if everyone had just jumped and coalesced around and then, it would have been a really interesting race. But mm. two things have, have hamstrung that. One is, you know, Trump getting indicted, someone actually wrote at the time and got roasted for it. It was a conservative wrote, this is the best thing that could happen to Trump. Now, in mm. the long run, I don't know if that's true, but in terms of the Republican primary, he was absolutely right. Because now every Republican office holder, every Republican figure feels compelled to, to defend him, including DeSantis. So, how, again, how do you run against a guy in that circumstance? DeSantis doesn't seem to know how. Maybe Tim Scott does. But they're going to need somebody, because, and it needs to be one person. Because no matter what happens, 
Donald Trump's going to get no less than 40% of the Republican primary vote. We know this because he's already done it. Uh, so the question becomes, okay, if he's going to get 40% of the vote, all the other vote has to go to somebody else, and that's highly unlikely to happen. We've seen that before, too. So, uh, again, things could change. His health could become an issue. Uh, he could get increasingly unstable, although <laughs> there's not a lot more of that mountain left to climb, but uh, <laughs> he could. And if that happens, then maybe there's an opening. But right now, I don't see it. Yeah. So I want to return to California for one question. I hope David and Catherine will indulge me uh, in the interest of time here. But uh, the, the reason I want to ask you about this is I'm like a massive baseball fan. I'm quite a number of years older than you, and I've been following baseball faithfully since the early 1960s. I distinctly recall when the athletics left Kansas City and moved to Oakland. I believe it was 1968, if I recall correctly. And in the early 70s, of course, both the A's and, and the Oakland Raiders there were, were a standard that others in professional sports aspired to. Now we know what's going on. Oakland is about to be without a Major League Baseball team to go along with an already departed fabled NFL franchise. I still can't believe I can't say the Oakland Raiders any longer. What happened, and could anything political have been done to prevent what's happened to the city of Oakland with all of this? Well, and also I feel compelled to point out, and they lost their NBA team because the Warriors right. went across to that new arena. Across the I think that's yeah. part of it. It's it, a lot of it is facilities, and and could something be done politically? Yes, but I don't think the community had an appetite for that. There's been this real push and pull in professional sports now, as you all well know, being a sports fan for probably the last oh heck thirty forty years, and it's just getting worse and worse of these private owners who make a healthy amount of money off their professional franchises, I'm going to use the word at some level extorting the cities they, they, they belong to. Look at the San Diego Chargers and the, and the family there that runs that team, moving the team to L.A. Uh, because they couldn't get a stadium out of San Diego. Uh, I think you're going to see it just happen this week. I think you're going to see an NHL franchise relocate out of Arizona because the city of Tempe voted not to build a new arena. So I, that's a big part of it. Part of it is, too, though, it, it's, it's ownership slash leadership. The Oakland A's have been, with the exception of a couple years there that were made famous in the Moneyball movie, um, mm-hmm. they've been awful. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I can tell the story now that their time there is short, but about maybe five, six years ago, uh, our oldest – pretty big baseball fan, so we were on a spring break trip up in the Bay Area, and we decided to go to opening night for the Oakland A's. I, I want to say they were playing the Texas Rangers, I believe it was. But again, opening night, home opener, first day of the season. Guys, I'm not joking. If there were 5,000 people there, I think that's on oh, high goodness. side. <laughs> they just completely – I mean – People, you can have a loyal fan base that will put up with a lot of misery. The Detroit Lions come to mind immediately. But at some point, people, especially as the cost of going to these games has escalated. You know, we looked into season tickets for the Dodgers. I'm a big Dodgers fan, and it's like, no, you know, we'll buy a few games off secondary markets because 
season tickets break down to I, I again I, I'm I know you say you're significant older than me, but I'm on the I'm on the other side of fifty at this point and I remember being able to go to the top deck of Dodger Stadium for five bucks a ticket. Uh-huh. And this was not when I was a kid. This is when I was an adult. We are going next week to the Dodgers Yankees game and we're in the top deck and the tickets were seventy eight dollars each. Um, now mm-hmm. secondary market and it's a it's a big game obviously. We don't get the AL East very often, but the point I'm trying to make is people will do that for the Dodgers in large numbers because they're contenders. They're perennial contenders. People mm-hmm. are not going to line up to pay $40 a ticket to see a team that's going to be out of the race by July. Uh, and Vegas might, because one thing they're doing that's smart, I'll give the Vegas plan credit for this. It's I think they're planning a 30,000-seat stadium. Mm-hmm. That's smart, because they're not – they're not going to get a 50, 60,000, you know, whatever. I think Dodger Stadium is about 55,000. They're not going to get that for the A's. So it's, and plus it's a smaller footprint, and Vegas real estate's not cheap. So I think that's going to be kind of the wave of the future is, is you're going to see cities vying for these things, but I think you're also going to see ballparks get smaller because the demand for tickets is dropping a little bit just because they're so darn expensive. I, I wouldn't mm. even contemplate unless I got a gift or, or I had money burning a hole in my pocket for some reason going to an NFL game because – that's a triple digit in L.A. to park is $75. Oh, mm. park. Goodness. The tickets are, we won't even talk about because my brother and I went to go see the Chargers and Chiefs. We're big Kansas City fans. Yeah, $75 to park. And the f- average family of four can do that once, maybe. Where it used to be, you'd, mm-hmm. you'd go religious. And I went to so many games when I was a kid. But mm. now it's not terribly affordable. Okay, well, Steve, um, because we're running out of time, I'm going to send it back to David, but let me leave you with this. I saw my first major league game in person in 1966, and the the opposing pitcher that night in Atlanta was a fellow by the name of Sandy Koufax. I'll never forget that that night. (laughs) Let me give it back to David now, David. That's awesome. Yes. Well, Steve, I'll give you two pieces of good news before we get off of here. Uh, one, if you come out to Atlanta, I get you to an NFL game cheaper than out in L.A. Uh, I know, right now, for the Falcons, I got, I got some connections on yeah. GovX and some other things. And I don't know if GovX is out in um, Los Angeles, but it, it'll help you out on t- NFL tickets, among other things. And second thing, I'm looking at a good piece of education news. I found out this past week that starting this past school year, Alabama teachers got anywhere from 6 to 21% pay raise um, across the board. A teacher in a place called Center, Alabama, which is smaller, just a small community over the Georgia state line, a teacher can make va- more there than um, Chattanooga, um, Tennessee, across the board. Happen to look up both, wow. and so um, at least there's a, there's a, at least even a Republican state that understands you got to pay teachers more if you're going to recruit them, not come after them. So I thought I'd give you a little good news because usually when we bring up education questions, it's negative stuff. So there's a little bit of positive. Yeah, I'll be right back. Just checking out Center, Alabama. I'm just checking real estate prices. I'll I'll get back to you. Uh, on oh, that. well, cost of, <laughs> about cost of living. Uh, for for the uh, salaries, Alabama may be one of the highest in the country now because uh, it's really, I mean, it significantly uh, changed their um, teacher salaries across the board. But, Steve, before we leave you, 
Um, tell us, you know, where we can read you, social media, those kind of things, and we'll get you off of here. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Steve Singizer. Steve, as you'd expect it to be spelled, Singizer, S-I-N-G-I-S-E-R. Yeah, you'll find me on election nights at Daily Co's elections, and you'll find me wandering the South Bay section of Los Angeles. I'm the heavy guy with the long gray beard. <laughs> <laughs> There's more than All one right. of those in L.A. I will concede that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that you, there might be a person or two that fits that description. But, uh, Steve, thanks again yeah. for um, coming on the show. We know you're finishing up your school year, but I'm sure we'll have you on uh, again at some point in the future. Anytime, you guys. Thank you. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Steve. You bet. All right. Steve, Steve Singizer, one of our favorite guests, probably my favorite teacher that I've never worked with or been in the classroom with. Um, love talking to Steve. And so good to have his perspective from across the country. Um, but that's pretty much our show tonight. I'm excited about next week. Um, we have a new guest. Bruce Melman, who does these quarterly slide decks, he's a lobbyist, political consultant, and, and out of D.C. These slide decks in the Beltway have become infamous over the past few years about really kind of tackling, you know, maybe something that's not just totally obvious and, and going through the problem with looking at some different points and in information. So we're going to talk to Bruce about the overall macro concept and then maybe get into some of the more recent slide decks and ask him some specific questions. So we're looking forward to that. Um, but until then, in the Kudzu Run, Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united America. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.